0: She writes to me unexpectedly, asking if I, too, have memory attacks. That's the phrase she uses, memory attacks. And I check to see if that's something from the language she speaks, some quirk of translation. But no, it's her own personal idiom. Which I guess makes it make even more sense to me, actually. Of course I have them, every day. I slip down chutes and conduits of thought into reveries and reminiscences. I wander off, down all these paths that lead to big paddocks where I can turn in a wide circle of recollection, enter a diorama of all I've seen and done. And each of these, in turn, can send me on my way to another place and time, into the company of others lost in the realm of memory as well. I live in this old train carriage that's been dragged into the bush, in Tasmania, and island at the bottom of the world, in case you've never heard of it. The train stays still, so instead of passing moving panoramas, I see the same vista every day, these trees that rise out of a green tangle of scrub, obscuring the horizon. Only the shadows are moving, stretching and bending around the train carriage as it chugs off to nowhere. I live here with the native birds around me. Fellow travellers whose calls can only place me here. Yet even still it's easy enough to envision this life in a stationary train as a journey elsewhere. Anywhere. Perched on the front deck eating my breakfast, I could well be on a platform in Transylvania or San Jose or underneath Heathrow Airport. And sitting on the red sofa inside the carriage, I can sometimes imagine myself on my way, somewhere on a metro, or the S-Bahn, or the V-Line. I am burdened with baggage. But unlike in the real stations of transit, my luggage moves comfortably along with me. Doesn't need to be dragged along, lifted and balanced, a burden like atlases. So I transfer myself through place in time, travel dexterously through memory, relocate myself wherever I like. So I am suddenly in Budapest, drinking a beer al fresco when a bicycle clatters by. I turn my head to see a woman in a yellow dress with her arms outstretched, flapping as if flying, the most perfect personification of pure happiness I've ever seen. And naturally I conflate her with the friend who a fortnight later walked me to that same city's central station, leading her own two-wheeled machine, her tattooed knuckles curled around the handlebars, dark eyes, black beehive, dad dead in Palestine, she says her bicycle is named Bulldog Shug. Which in Hungarian means happiness. Subsequently, I'm on a bus by the Bosphorus Sea. There's a pretty girl sitting in the baggage compartment reading the novel Mutluluk, which is Turkish for happiness or bliss. She's gorgeous. And I don't have any real wish to leave, but memory now throws me to the sea's other shoreline, where the old wooden mansions stand wobbling as the sun sets, and my friend says to me she doesn't suppose she'll ever see them again. They've been purchased by investors, who are ready to renovate them, fix up every rotten plank, and turn them into swish seaside apartments. My friend sighs, but says they will stand forever in her mind, that no one will stop her climbing up those stairs in memory. Likewise, I have been glad to have had an enormous treasure of past experiences to return to in these moments in which I've not been sure what the future holds. It's something I've slowly been coming to understand. That I too have stairs I keep climbing in my mind. Up to my room in a Launceston share house along that south-coast bush track, emerging from a distant subway station. In certain forests, on city streets, I encounter endless reminders of stories from my past. In some neighbourhoods I can't walk more than a few footsteps without revisiting some event I lived previously and which seems to spring up from the pavement. Even my long-lost thoughts reappear ghost thoughts that haunt me following my own footsteps as I pass an empty lot or walk to the shop or cross through a park. Every square inch of a well-known place is permanently marked with our memories. They force us to reminisce on the sheer enormity of everything we have perceived and experienced in our few short years on this earth. So I reply to the unexpected email knowing that she'll write back with something Socratic and contrarian? I say, memory forms a great foundation for the rest of your life. She asks, or is it a morass in which the framework of your existence will eventually nostalgically sink? People often ask me what it's like to live in a train carriage. Assuming, I suppose, that the ants is going to be interesting, so it's a shame that I have to disappoint them. I receive few visitors here. Tend to no garden, make no efforts to renovate. Sometimes I gather firewood, but well, that's about the busiest I get. I cook and I make coffee. I meditate or at least that's what I call it when I get distracted by how the moss is glistening in green zigzags across the lawn. But mostly, if you really want to know, I read and I write. Which might make you wonder, why is this bloke so obsessed with words? By the time I was addicted to literary activities it was too late to answer the question objectively myself. I suppose none of us ever really gets to the bottom of understanding our most intractable traits. I mean, I did once try to nut it out. I travelled to the far north of the northern hemisphere to do so. There I studied the poets of the Norse nations, who wrote great verses to record the history of their world. They did so self-consciously, with something of an awareness of their role in society as well as a good story to explain why they, as writers, were so important. Their patron was a god called Odin, or Odin, as you might know him. In one version of Nordic myth, Odin traded his eye to drink a deep draught from the well of wisdom. An eye. Quite a price to pay, you might suggest. Although to bestow a thousand years of poetry onto the world, perhaps it was a bargain. Another medieval mythographer says that poets get their inspiration from the dregs of a dreadful cocktail brewed from the blood and spit of a shaman. Whatever the case, if you were one of those Norsemen and women a millennium ago, you'd have sensed something magical and mythical and spiritual to whatever scribbling was going on, which makes me feel a little bit better about spending almost all of my time doing these things. The Vikings respected poets mostly because they could give warriors and royals a form of immortality. In essence, that's what poets were for then, making memorials, ensuring that great deeds weren't forgotten. Odin was also a god of memory, and he was the inspiration of the Viking raiders too. He inspired both storytellers and berserkers. I like that. Likewise, if you go to the famous epic poems of Homer, you'll see that part of their purpose, at least, is to immortalise the Greek army who fought that war in Troy back in the day. Or if you want to go further back, somewhere I saw the lyrics of an ancient Sumerian song, which I think makes it one of the oldest in the world, and it started with a stanza that has a familiar framework. All past tense. (inaudible) Ure ure nan nam, gire gire nan nam. Mure mure I'm making up the tune for that little ditty, by the way, in case you couldn't tell, but the translation pretty simply says it was in those days, it was in those nights, it was in those years that something happened, dot dot dot. Like an old cod just starting off a yarn by saying, oh, Back in my day. So the singer of this song is looking back on life as it once was. It's the beginning of some nostalgic ballad. Typical sentimental writer, you might think. But the ability to do this is built into the way we speak. From what I understand, not all languages have, in their infrastructure, the same set of tenses that we do. But the family of languages known as Indo-European which somehow came to exist deep in human history and eventually gave birth to everything from English to Spanish to Persian to Sanskrit. It's constructed around past, present and future tenses. Currently the popular theory is that this language originally arose from the Caucasian grasslands, north of the Black Sea, sort of in the southern parts of Russia, perhaps with a tribe that was also among the first to domesticate the horse. Thus opening up their continent for great journeys and good old fashioned colonial expansion. This was a people who set up seasonal addresses, living semi nomadic existences up on the steppes. They were travelers, and the language they foisted on their neighbors, which spread widely across the vast territory of Eurasia, had adventures written into its grammar. These people were aware of horizons and landmarks ahead and behind. In their pantheon was a sky god. I suspect that such a portable society must have felt like that god was the only one who could have been omniscient, that only the sky and the poets could tell a full account of their story. So it was with the Greeks and the Vikings and countless other cultures who live in the present with an inherent awareness of the past and a sense for the future as well. So it is for us too. We are still stuck in the same linguistic framework. My job may be as a keeper of memory, taking stock of the tracks upon which we've travelled with an eye on the landscape ahead. Which is a bit funny. "'cause these days I sit alone in a train carriage in the bush, "'going nowhere, as you may have heard. "'But what a blessing and curse it is, "'this inbuilt function of language, "'the engine at its core, "'this grammar that keeps track of the time, "'the way these words innately catalogue what's lost, the syntax of people with both history and destination. Poetry, with its long, bloody memory. One of the most pleasant side effects of the storyteller's life is that you're always given the chance to rework events or emphasise emotions, to constantly rewrite the narrative of your life however you like. But then again, memory is always malleable, isn't it? And so it stands that we are all professional storytellers, literally making our livings from spinning yarns that help us master the world around us but there are certain memories you only catch through the cracks. I'm not just talking about the nights where you've drubbed your brain with depressants and stimulants so that all you've got's a smudge of where you've been and what you've done and to whom you've mumbled what drivel. But some memories are faint from being far off. I squint or tighten the muscles in my brain, but all I see is a surrealist, half-formed face The visage of Miss Amelia Fish, with whom, when I was five or six years old, I played kiss and catch and did exactly that. Although in a different order, I suppose. There are other memories which aren't viewed clearly because some instinct within you has suppressed them. You see them as if underwater, like you've dunked them, trying to drown them. Like that time at indoor soccer when I let the balls spill from my hands and into the net. That one's a minor embarrassment, I guess. For most of us, I suspect, larger ones loom deeper, like sharks' silhouettes. It so happened that in childhood we lived not so far from a railway line. Sometimes I would hear from my bunk the whistle of the train blaring through the bush. I never much kept an eye on the time and certainly knew nothing of the itinerary of these trains, but if you were to ask at what hour this piercing whistling interrupted my dreams, I would say that it came in the wee hours of the morning, beyond midnight. And if I picture it now, I imagine the train moving by moonlight. But in truth, I never once saw it. Indeed, although as kids we traipsed every square inch of the paddocks that surrounded our town, I think many years passed before I even caught sight of the tracks, running beyond the newly planted vineyards and Jingler's Creek, towards the open plains of the east, with its one great mountainous edifice rising high and unexpected on the horizon. Although I can now say that this was the trajectory of that train, as a child I had no way of knowing. My geography was confused, my map of the world a calamitous mishmash, I'd never been on a train in my life. But I had grown up watching Thomas the Tank Engine. I was a big fan, actually. And later I was influenced by tales of travel on the North American rail system. That's how, eventually, when I was woken by that train's infernal shriek, as loud and fierce as a Tassie Devil's, and lured into that vague and pleasant state of half-dreaming, I could picture myself on this train. Without having experienced it myself, I could intuit what it would be like. The train ran quickly out of the well-known eucalyptus woodlands, leaving the neighbouring farmer's paddocks in its wake. I was familiar with those places, but once it passed by there, I was entering unknown terrain. So then it could go anywhere. It was decoupled from physical geography and could now travel through the psyche. Perhaps as the moon dissolved in the pastel colours of the sky, I pictured myself moving towards the dawn, entering a landscape I'd never seen in real life before. In books I had seen photos of European megaliths and of certain American mountains, the Devil's Marbles and Yosemite's Half Dome. The train tracks threaded through these staggering behemoths, these bewildering specimens of geology. Then it found its way into a dark forest of conifers, populated by deer and squirrels, drenched in a perpetual dusk. Finally I was taken through a gentle valley that ran towards a bay as blue as forget-me-nots, straight to the terminal station, from which I suppose another journey was to begin, outwards, beyond the seas. But in fact I doubt that I ever conjured up exactly this itinerary, All these places were in my head, but I had not yet connected them with any possibility for myself. My childhood occupied a small neighbourhood, it always did. There were no tracks for me to follow anywhere else. I didn't believe in that train. It was only by chance that I eventually found transportation. I think it was mostly because I was physically restless, that I wasn't content until my energy was all spent As I approached adulthood I walked great lengths yet found that no matter how far I went there was always somewhere else to go next and another place beyond this. Still I remember those train tracks. The tracks themselves, their basic facts. Endless sheer steel bars that curved over gorse and other weeds tethered to wooden planks that were laid into a bed of bluestone gravel. The sun was pouring down on them the steel shining like dark canals, running off past golden grass, going east. Sometimes it seems that in childhood I preemptively dreamed the life that I would lead, which means that when I remember the past, I'm in fact recalling the present moment. The tenses get all mixed up, yet they make everything clearer as well like paints on a palette that when blended somehow come out transparent. Or perhaps in adulthood I have retroactively placed these dreams in my head and dressed them in a blue haze so that they seem like memory. Either way I cherish it. I took great pleasure when I first noticed it, when I was 20 years old and on the Shatabdi Express between Chandigarh and Delhi. I was looking out at some agrarian landscape which was tinged yellow by the tinting on the windows, and yet I was quite sure that I'd been there before, wandering down a specific dusty track that receded into the distance, and how beautiful I found the memory of that imaginary occasion. For some days, I frequented the same café bar in Ljubljana, making it my personal resting point in the mid-afternoons when I'd been on my feet for hours investigating the banks of the Ljubljanica River, its exquisite bridges, the statues, the avenues of trees along the stream, and of course, the inhabitants of that beautiful city. Although I could keep up my people watching over a macchiato or a glass of wine at the café bar so I did not fail to notice the middle-aged woman who arrived at about the same time every day with a sketchbook. I figured she too was a visitor, although she didn't seem like your average tourist, and whatever she drew she did so with due diligence, furrowing her brow and making constant adjustments and amendations to her work. Eventually we spoke, on the fifth or sixth occasion that we were there at the same time, There had been a protest in the street, a march that had marched off quite quickly, really. But this was pretext enough for us to make a gesture of mutual intrigue and, starting with small talk, construct a conversation. We worked out where each other was from, ascertained for how long we planned to be there, what work we did, all the usual stuff. She was a migrant from further east, and had moved to Slovenia to pursue certain opportunities she couldn't find back home. She was a migrant from further east and had moved to Slovenia to pursue certain opportunities she couldn't find back home. I asked about the sketchbook. She said that whenever she wanted to get to know a place, she drew it. It helped her recognise the details, the textures and contours, the architectural identity, the way the light fell. I said I couldn't agree more and referred to the travel rider I once guided on a bushwalk back home who said he never used a camera, but drew everything he thought was photogenic. It was just a pity, I admitted, that I can't sketch at all. But this woman said that was hardly the point, because even attempting a picture would be a meditation of sorts, a way of seeing and remembering. Finally, I asked if I might see her sketches. But flicking through the pages, I was slightly confused. For it seemed that every afternoon she had drawn a very different scene, none of them like what I could see through the windows of the cafe bar we both visited every day. It wasn't until a few weeks later, when having travelled on, I arrived in the city of Plovdiv in Bulgaria, That I realised this woman had not been drawing the city she'd chosen to make home for now, but the one that she'd had to leave, and yet remembered so keenly it was superimposed upon the city to which she'd moved. This all made me think of an unnamed woman from the book of Genesis in the Bible, the wife of Lot. The two of them had made a family home for themselves in Sodom, when God decided to destroy that city for its various sins. Two angels were sent to forewarn Lot's family. They were told to flee. Escape for your life, they said. Go off to the mountains or some faraway city, and do not look behind you as we blow Sodom up. They took off in the middle of the night, and Lot and his daughters sprinted away without second thoughts, but Lot's wife now forced into being a refugee, about to go and live in a bloody cave with her husband and kids, turned around for one last glimpse at the city that had been home, and was punished for it, turned into a pillar of salt. Why should that have happened? Why punish a homeless woman for trying to imprint upon her memory the last place in the world in which she had rest and peace? I'm lucky and I have never been kicked out of a home. I've never been evicted, exiled or displaced. But even still I find myself turning around with tremendous frequency, thinking back on places I once knew on people I've shared my life with. Like that lady in the Ljubljana cafe, I am often found contemplating the past, laying it on top of the present. I suppose I run the risk of the same strange consequence. One day I'll be leaning over my journal, filling it with reminiscences when some god will just get sick of it. and a visitor will come, he will only find a big pile of salt spilt throughout my train carriage, and they'll wonder what the hell has happened here. She hugs me farewell, skips and leaps onto her bicycle. As the train pulls out of the station, I watch her ride off on Bulldog Shug, speeding away on happiness. I will never see her again. But the train shuffles into a slow and sleep-inducing rhythm, and I am no longer riding through Europe's grasslands. I am in the mountains of western Guatemala, in the back of a ute as monsoon clouds rumble over rainforest with maleficent intent. The ute slows down on a bend, and a young lad jumps on, dragging his bike up with him. We exchange nods, brief courtesies in Spanish. I'm just getting acquainted with the language, learning to click my tongue and produce its furious sparks the staccato beat which produces poems to which you might well choose to dance. The young man points to his bike and asks if I know what this is called. I give a self-satisfied grin and say, Una bicicleta. Pleased he put me to a test that I could actually pass. Yet then he shook his head. No, he said. La Libertad. It's called freedom. I reminisce on when I, too, was a bit more free to move. I am in Greece with a rucksack over my shoulders. I've been hiking for the past six days and now I'm waiting for the once-or-twice-a-week bus that departs from this village a small cluster of stone houses clinging to the upper slopes of the mountain whose summit I wandered over yesterday. Half a dozen elderly citizens are at the bus stop with me, and one pulls out a newspaper. I spell out its title, letter by letter in a foreign but familiar alphabet. It reads Eleftheria, which is freedom in Greek. The old fellow reading it looks up at me and tells me in a hoarse mumble, Once we did not have it. Freedom. But we fought for it. I was just a boy. He follows that single word with its fifteen or so syllables down a path named Eleftheria over its rough cobbles into the past. I left that mountain with a head heavy with memory heavier than my backpack ever was strange substance that it has, memory? A sort of jelly, maybe? Or is it gristly like an oyster? For in the gelatinous flesh of reminiscences from that day I have found a bit of grit, a grain of sand, one that over time has formed into a pearl of wisdom. Or is it a jewel of regret? Do you have memory attacks, she asks. And I have to confess that yes, I have them all the time. But I don't mind the challenge of contending with these countless remembrances. I feel enriched by them. The texture of my life is made much more sumptuous. I have met those who have lost the ballast of memory. Those whose amnesia has made it impossible for them to recognise the most familiar elements of their lives. And I have seen the fear in their eyes. Of course, we all forget much more than we recall. And all memories are mutants, only vaguely resembling the stimuli that originally landed in our minds. They weather and fracture. They swell or shrink. They change colours over the years. Memory, after all, is just another genre of the fables we tell about ourselves and the world we live in. None of us are strictly faithful to the truth. Our brains don't really let us. Today I am watching skinks in the sun on my front deck. They're prolific little lizards. Quick and flexible. Metallic, kaleidoscopic curls of elusive life. Fast and frequently in motion. Good at finding corners and hiding. They seem like a metaphor for many of my memories. You catch a glimpse but rarely can you seize them. Yet a friend of mine once proposed another metaphor, for a memory of a different sort perhaps. Once in a shack deep in the bush, where he lived, near the headwaters of a rivulet, he had a raven fly through the window and fix a fierce stare upon him. My mate was reluctant to look back, And I guess I wouldn't go much on absorbing such a penetrating gaze either, in such close proximity. Those wicked eyes. The protuberance of that black beak. But it was as though the raven wasn't going to leave unless my friend met its eyes. Or so he said. So he mustered up the courage to stare back. After about thirty seconds of this intensely silent interview, the raven flew out of the hut again, as if in a huff. Not long after that, my mate says, he learned that near where he was living, there had been a killing of Aboriginal people. He now sees that raven as a messenger of sorts, a visitant from some distant realm such as the past. My mate reckons that there are some aspects of memory and history that we've chosen to ignore, Stories we've suppressed to make life easier for ourselves. We look away, even when they're standing so blatantly in our midst. The ancient writer Pliny the Elder reckoned it wasn't a surprise that animals with the best faculties for memory were also the most able to show affection. He was talking about elephants but I've applied it to myself. If there is a purpose to all this incessant remembering, it may be to help me develop a little bit of empathy. Memory reminds me that a life is made of myriad unexpected paths, tracks that zigzag across the routes that others are taking, all of us wandering towards a future that we cannot yet remember and therefore do not yet understand.